only this one is a mere 169 words. And it starts in verse 15. If you could turn there now. And finishes in verse 23. Around Christmases and birthdays, folk are often heard to complain of the difficulty of buying presents for the woman or man who has everything. And when we read this text, it seems to be a prayer for the believer who has everything. After all, Paul has just demonstrated that Christians have every spiritual benefit, including election, predestination, adoption, grace, redemption, insight, understanding, the knowledge of the mystery of God's will, and to top it off very nicely, the seal of the Holy Spirit. How could there even be space for anything more? However, as a normal man with normal human failings, Paul understands that often believers are like the woman who has a beautiful dinner set in the cupboard that she never uses because she's afraid that it will be ruined if it is actually used. He wants to make sure that the gifts we have been given are fully understood and appreciated, but also pressed into service at every opportunity for the glory of God. Let's read what he has written then. Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. Therefore I also, after I had heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would penetrate our hearts with God's word today. Therefore, Paul starts by looking both backwards to all God has done for the believer in this world and forwards to what God promises in eternal life in heaven. In view of the enormity of what he can see, he cannot be still. He must act. He must thank God and he must pray that all believers gain the insight to share the fullness of his vision. There is a consequence to hearing about the Lord's work that we can't ignore. We learn from Paul's constant prayer in verses 15 and 16 that as Christians, when we hear about God working in other believers' lives, the correct response isn't just to say or think, well, that's nice, and then carry on taking the garbage out, but to give thanks to God for what we have heard and then to pray for the worker. This accomplishes two very important things. Firstly, If you recall from last week, we learned that our reason, the reason for our inheritance, our very reason for being was for God's praise and glory. Now, if we hear of God's work and dismiss it as being unimportant, aren't we being disrespectful and dismissive of God himself? 
And obviously that's quite the opposite of glorifying him. And I don't think we really want to go there. Secondly, can I ask if there's anyone here who wouldn't like to know that there was somebody praying for them at this very instant? No hands? I'm always so encouraged when I find out that some saint somewhere has been praying for me when I didn't know about it. It gives me a very warm and encouraging feeling in my heart. Do you know that it has probably happened for you? Do you know that? The reason I say that is when we have our church prayer day, one of the things we lay out in this hall to help people focus on various aspects of prayer is the church directory. And I know that a lot of the, a lot of the people who come here, they will sit and they will go through this page by page and pray for every single person that is there. Isn't that a marvellous thing? And I know that there are some people who do this outside of that prayer day anyway. So the chances are very good that even though you didn't know it, there's somebody been praying for you. That is a true blessing for the church. The truth is that although I might not know that I'm being prayed for, I always need it. And I know that I'm not alone in this. Yet there is often a great gap in our prayer lives. The modern church has two principal weaknesses. We don't pray enough and we don't study God's word enough. Can you imagine what the church would be like as a body if we all responded to news of the Lord's work with thanksgiving to him and prayer for the worker. To start with, there would be a constant stream of praise going up to God. I rather think he'd like that. And then could you imagine the constant atmosphere of praise that would envelop the whole body of the church, supporting it and building it up. I found this quote from a pastor named William Graham Scroggy, who died over 50 years ago, which sums up rather nicely how thanksgiving and intercession work together to build the body. He writes, Thanksgiving is for the foundation already laid, but intercession is for the superstructure going up. Thanksgiving is for past attainments, but intercession is for future advancements. Thanksgiving is for the actual in their experience, but intercession is for the possible in God's purpose for them. Let's be sure that we are not guilty of a prayer gap, that we are thanking and interceding as often as possible because it will make a real difference to the body of the church, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and not least of all to ourselves. It seems that Paul agrees because a little bit later in Ephesians 4, we read about how God has supplied various gifts to different people for the benefit of the church. The purpose of which is that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, I'm going a bit out of context here. I want to put that up, in, up front before I go on. But So while Paul is specifically talking about Christian work here, it seems so appropriate to imagine this same effect from constant prayer. The church, the body of Christ, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of prayer by which every part does its share, 
causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That would be a thing to see. Brethren, will you be part of the supply and effective working? Will you cause growth? I urge you to give thanks and glory to God and to pray for your Christian brothers and sisters whenever you can. In doing so, you echo the actions of the Ephesians. A vertical response of faith to the Lord Jesus and a horizontal response of love to the saints. Those two, faith and love, must work together. Trying to live with any single one alone makes you a crippled Christian. How can I claim to have faith in Christ and not act in love towards my brother? How can I truly claim to love my brother without the backbone of faith in Christ? With faith and love acting together, I am whole and I can love God and my neighbor as Jesus commanded. Let's move on now to ask what it is that Paul is praying for. In verse 17 he asks, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. To find Paul's prayer objective and therefore know what we should be doing, we must break this verse down a bit into some smaller questions. To start with, who does he address the prayer to? Well, it's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He goes straight to the source, the author, the true authority. Do you know what? Well, all of us can as well. It's as though any one of us could pick up the phone at any time, day or night, and call John Key and say, Hey John, what do you think I should do with my mortgage? Should I go with a fixed or floating rate? Are you guys going to do anything weird with the economy? And then we would get a considered answer. This is a great privilege, more especially when we consider that it isn't just a man that we can speak to, (laughs) no matter how important they might be in the world. They are nothing compared to the sovereign creator God. And through Christ, we have constant access to the Father. He hears us and he will act. That's just fantastic, folks. Next, what is the spirit of wisdom and revelation that he's referring to? Well, there are two possibilities. Either he is speaking of the human spirit or he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Now, the solution to this has been the subject of a lot of discussion amongst biblical scholars, which of course is jolly complicated and it uses words like anathos and genitive and it can't be understood by normal folks like us. By the way, I've looked up the meaning of the word in Arthas and it just means that you've never met anyone named Arthur. (laughs) However, however, what I could glean from the commentaries is that the greatest weight of opinion by far lies with this being the Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of very complicated arguments to support this position. But the most basic one and probably the most obvious is this. How can created humans ever know the things of their creator God by their own ingenuity. We just can't. It's just not possible. We can only know God through his own self-revelation and in this case, that is through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Paul is praying that God may give the believer the benefit of the Holy Spirit's knowledge of God. 
And since they are one person, he ought to be well informed. Now, we should also note the use of these words, wisdom and revelation, that have been described as the path to this knowledge. Paul might have just asked that believers would plainly have knowledge of God, but instead he, he specifically adds and uses these two words. Well, it can be explained that revelation deals with the imparting of knowledge whilst wisdom has to do with the proper use of it in our lives. It seems that Paul is seeking much more than just the objectivity of dry facts. In fact, he is looking for a nuclear explosion of understanding, one that can't be ignored and one that absolutely demands action. And where will the energy for that come from? Who will light the fuse? Well, you know, one of the problems we have today is that so much competes for our attention. And it appears that this distraction isn't by any means a modern phenomenon either, as this quote points out. These Ephesian Christians had already divine illumination, or they would not have been Christians at all. But Paul prayed that the divine spirit who dwelt in them would make their vision clearer, keener, stronger, that the divine power and love and greatness might be revealed to them far more fully. And perhaps in these days in which men are making such rapid discoveries in inferior provinces of thought, discoveries so fascinating and so exciting as to rival in interest even for Christian men, the manifestation of God in Christ, there is exceptional need for the church to pray that God would grant it a spirit of wisdom and revelation. If he were to answer that prayer, we should no longer be dazzled by the knowledge which relates to things seen and temporal. It would be outshone by the transcendent glory of things unseen and eternal. Now this was written by a fellow called Robert William Dale, who died in, 19, in 1895. And that was written a long time ago, but it's still so pertinent. And when we consider how much more difficult it has become to focus on things of God in the modern era with this absolute flood, this deluge of knowledge that is available to us at just the click of a button, unless I'm already too much out of date with the merest caress of a finger on a touch screen, it becomes obvious how utterly reliant we are on the work of the Holy Spirit to grab our attention and reveal to us the things of God. Paul's prayer was appropriate then, and it is appropriate now. We need the Spirit's touch. We need that revelation. However, please don't assume that you will find it by accident. But someday, a mysterious power will come upon you and reveal all. No, as with all our lives as believers, we have a part to play too. There are too many folk in the church, and sadly, yes, in this church too, who rely solely on the sermon for their hearing and understanding of God's word. And while that has its place, and they will grow from that, it isn't enough by far. God wants us to spend time reading his scriptures, drawing them in and breathing them in as if they were air for our very lives, which they are in truth. If you were drowning, you would give anything for a breath of air. Well, 
if you aren't reading God's word regularly, then you are drowning spiritually. Just take that breath. To be sure, the scriptures are complicated, and Paul in particular stands more guilty than this of almost anyone else. But there is no reason to give up. We have so many kinds of help available to us. There are endless commentaries, endless books, electronic search engines, elders, deacons, and pastors to talk to. But most outstanding, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. Friends, if you are puzzled by Scripture, then get down on your knees and ask the Holy Spirit to help you. I know that He will be anxious to explain, and He will help. I know, I've seen this in my life, and I know there are lots of people here who can testify to that as well. But there are those two initial steps first. You must be reading the scriptures and you must ask. This brings me to the next question. What type of knowledge is Paul speaking of? Well, of course there are lots of types of knowledge. I might know that somebody is 42 years old, that they're about 170 something centimeters tall, and they weigh around 100 kilos. Alternatively, I might know all of that, plus I know that they are a Christian, they faithfully study God's word every day, they are afraid of shoes, and they hate boiled eggs. Now, the latter shows that I know their character, not just their statistics. The Greek word used for knowledge in this verse is epignosis, and it suggests just such an intimacy of knowing someone well rather than just a superficial view of their exterior. Thus, Paul object, thus, thus Paul's prayer objective is that through the Holy Spirit, Christians would become deeply wise and knowledgeable about the character of God in a revelatory way. Facts alone will not be enough. We must know him personally and intimately and in doing so, it must be impossible. It must be impossible, folks, not to be excited by what we have found. I think it's worthwhile mentioning that this isn't likely to be the work of a morning, but is a worthy direction of an entire life's work. We will need to make every effort and search out every opportunity to build our knowledge, but all of that labor will be fruitless without the aid and revelation of the Holy Spirit. What will be your response to his offer of help? Will you commit to study of scripture or will you continue exactly as you are? As we read further now, we can see that Paul has set up some layers of understanding his prayer. He has a goal for us that goes beyond just knowing. We aren't just randomly accumulating knowledge about God as some kind of intellectual exercise because he writes this threefold petition, starting in verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Now verse 18 starts with a slightly peculiar phrase talks about the eyes of your understanding. Now, what does this mean? Uh, your Bible might use the word heart instead of understanding. Now, I've got eyes on the front of my head. 
and they bring me information from the world around me. And I make many, many decisions about what to do based on the evidence of my eyes. In fact, it's a continuous process. Otherwise, I would bump into things and some of them would sting. However, since the sight of the vision that Paul is referring to is in the heart or understanding, it's obviously quite a different sort of seeing to this. And I believe the key is in this word, enlightened. It suggests some kind of change from a dark place to one of light. And since we have just been speaking about the Holy Spirit, it is reasonable to assume that this is a spiritual place of darkness. There are a great many references to this position in Scripture, but since we are in Ephesians, let's just stay there for the answer. So in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, we read, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. And in chapter 5, verse 8, For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Thus we can understand that we move from darkness to light, to enlightenment, in fact, when we become Christians. And this is a process that takes place in the heart, not the eyes. Because the heart was seen by the Jews as a seat of thought, the organ of practical knowledge and wisdom. Looking at things repeatedly with our eyes often won't even change us a little bit. And we know this to be true. But when the vision becomes real in our hearts, that is when genuine change will take place. And this is what Paul prays for all believers. He wants them to start from a strong place, a place where they will know these three things. Firstly, the hope that God's calling brings, the value of the glory vested in the inheritance of the saints, and thirdly, the immensity of God's power towards believers. Now this first one, the hope of God's calling, is mostly future-orientated. It asks the believer to look towards the destiny that God has planned for us when he calls us. We shall be with Christ and like him forever. We will be sons of God and reign with him as his spotless bride. I want to think about this. I have this mental picture of trying to swim in an angry sea that's pushing me this way and that way and the wave sometimes driving me down. And I see a rock ahead, okay? And I'm able to cast a rope around that and draw myself then constantly in that direction towards safety. Now I am confident that I will survive because I have that anchor point. The rock is my hope. And so it is with the hope of God's calling. We have already spoken about how man is certainly born to trouble and all of us have definitely experienced difficulty in some way or another. At those times, we wonder, what can we do to save ourselves, to stay afloat? Well, we can trust in God. Now, this is where my picture fails, because the miracle of my salvation isn't of my own making, because God has called me. He has predestined me. The rock has cast the rope and fastened me to it. Paul wants us to understand this, to have it underpin everything that we do, that we aren't adrift without hope. 
No matter how hard things may seem, there is a bigger picture. The rock will save us. In Greek thought, hope consists merely of a consoling dream of the imagination designed to forget the present troubles, yet leaving one with many uncertainties. And I think that's very consistent with the modern idea of hope. I hope I will win the lotto, which is a bit wishy-washy. The hope Paul speaks of, though, has an air of certainty, elements of expectation and rests on trust in God and a patient wait for God to work out his plan. That is a great hope, friends. Do you have that hope? The second concerns the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, as with a lot of what we've discussed here, there are a couple of ways of interpreting this verse. And one commentary that I consulted points out that each is so meaningful that both are worth consideration. So, the first way that we can read this verse, and I have to point out that this is the best one expositionally, is that the saints are God's inheritance. And what we must understand is that the saints aren't like some dusty trunk that you've discovered in the attic of your auntie's house after she's died, and it turns out to be full of newspapers from 1922, but it is a rich inheritance. I like this word rich because it conveys depth and succulence to me. We have real value, richness to God, because he has purchased his inheritance with the dearest and most expensive coin of all, the blood of Christ. It is so gracious of him that despicable unworthy sinners, enemies in fact, through the saving work of Jesus can be described as God's inheritance. Paul would like us then to fully appreciate the wondrous glory of what God has done by taking possession of his people, the saints, and what a privilege it is for us to be part of that assembly. We must be cautious here that we don't interpret our value to mean that we are top of the heap and that God will bend over backwards to please us, because nothing can be further from the truth. We have actually been rescued from a corrupt state in which we both lack spiritual good and are unable to do spiritual good. The definite consequence of this position is that lake of fire that I spoke about last week. But we have been rescued from it by Jesus this leaves us with a debt of gratitude that should be discharged by humble obedience and service to God. I firmly believe that a clear understanding of this is what Paul is praying for and hoping that we will begin to act on. The second way that we can read the phrase is that we would fully perceive the glory of our inheritance. Since this is the weaker understanding of the verse, I won't say any more than that if we do manage to grasp the immensity of that, to just, oh, words fail me. I can't even begin to, to say how great the thing is that, that we have inherited. Well, in comparison to that, the world cannot offer any interest for us. And just as I've already said, that should leave us with a debt of gratitude to work against. The third component of Paul's prayer is this. What is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? 
He wants us to have an appreciation that God really did some work in saving us. It wasn't like swatting a fly because the act is likened to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Paul's comparison for the work God in the act of salvation is the raising of Christ from the dead and his ascension to heaven. Now, imagine what that moment was like. Every single enemy of God was arrayed against him. And they were working against him. They wanted above all things to keep Christ in the tomb. And yet, God prevailed and they were resoundingly defeated. He exercised his mighty power there. And this is the magnitude of the act that Paul wants us to appreciate. F.P. Meyer writes this. It is power. It is his power. It is great power. Nothing less would suffice. It is exceeding great power, beyond the furthest cast of thought. This is the power which God used in our redemption, which he uses in our preservation, and which he will yet use in our glorification. Now at this point, I'm clumsily going to give you the benefit of some Greek. I say clumsily because I'm not a Greek scholar and it took me ages to figure this out. But one commentary points out how Paul is really stretching the language in trying to convey the greatness of God's power. And it's something that he's actually doomed in because there is no human language that will suffice. He piles up no less than four synonyms for power in one sentence. And it seems like there weren't many more that he could use. So, if we substitute the Greek then for some English words, verse 19 would read something like this. And I hope this overhead will help. Okay. And what is the hoopabalo megathos of his dunamis towards us who believe according to the enegaia of his iscus kratos? Is that clear to everyone? Okay. So, hoopabalo. It describes a throw beyond the mark. And that's, by the way, not a miss, but it's a surpassing achievement. It's like somebody throwing a javelin, okay? And they've got the world record there. And they throw well beyond it. Alright, that's hooperbello. And that'd be the root of um, our word hyperbolic today. Megathos means great magnitude. Okay? Dunamis means force, specifically miraculous power, ability, abundance, might, power, strength, violence, mighty work. And it's the root of modern words like dynamo and dynamic. In a Gaia, it means efficient, energetic, strong, effectual working. And this is where the word energy comes from. Iskus means forceful might, ability, power and strength. And lastly, Kratos means vigorous power and strength. So we put all these big words together. And we might restate the verse with these meanings in mind by saying, and what is the surpassing achievement in great magnitude of his miraculous power and abundant might towards us who believe according to the efficient, energetic, effectual operation of his forceful ability, vigorous power and strength. 
Paul wants us to see that our God is able. He has power beyond anything we can imagine. And that that power has been exercised for our benefit, is being continuously exercised for our benefit, and will be exercised for the same. But, most notably, past, present, and future for His glory. This is the power that we appeal to for help. The power that saves us. We have nothing to fear and everything to hope for. What a marvelous power. God grant us that we should gain a full appreciation of our position, as Paul has described, and that we should take that knowledge into our actions in our daily life here on earth. And let us remember that those actions are part of a far greater story because Paul finishes his prayer by reminding us as a climax of Jesus' exalted position. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Jesus, we have hope, we have worth, and we have a mighty God to secure us. We have a great deal to be thankful for, the expression of which must be our work for the good of the body and the glory of God. The question must be, how will I do that today? How will you do that today? Let us pray. Father, as we leave here today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us as much of a vision of you as our puny senses can manage. Father, that that understanding would mean that we go away and do things differently, that we work hard to become closer to you and that we work hard to bring you closer to others in the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Pete. We're going to end today with a song we started. What an amazing, awesome sermon. How big God is. Blessing and honour. Glory and power. Let's sing praises in response to that uh, this morning. Let's stand and sing the song. Let's sing it out after all that Dave has shown us and how magnificent God is. Blessing and honour. Blessing and honour, here we go. Blessing and honour.